0: to Awaken Podcast, Episode Three, with special guest Daniel Ingram. Dan, thank you so much for 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 joining us. It's a real pleasure to have you on. Happy and, to uh, be here. I, I'm just yeah, we're we're honoured. We're honoured that you're taking the time. It's it's really fantastic. I just wanted to kick off this really just by saying thanks, but also for all the work that you do. It's it's been. Uh, life-changing for for me and my brother who introduced it to me. So like that, just wanted to kind of clear that out of the way, man. It is. Yeah. Thank you. Metta all that good stuff.
1: But be grateful to the people who are kind enough to teach me. I am very largely passing on things that people taught me freely and trying to pass them on in that same spirit of open free Dharma. So
0: yeah. Right on man. Yeah. Uh, amazing stuff.
2: For those of, yeah, uh, The people listening who don't actually know you, Daniel, would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Sure. Okay. I'm Daniel Ingram. I have been practicing meditation formally for about 26 years now. I run an online forum called the Dharma Overground, where you can connect with other people who like talking about practice. I run another site called firecasina.com, Org. That's with a K, Casina, and I also want to do that with some friends. And I have a book called Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha, an unusually hardcore Dharma book, which admittedly has been somewhat influential and has become something of a cult classic. God help the world. (laughs) So that's that's a short story. Yeah.
0: Brilliant, brilliant. 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 And and just to sort of explain the format of this, we're we're, we're aiming for. As I said, we're new to this, but we're, we're trying to aim for something that's sort of conversational as much as possible. So feel free to ask us things as well. We don't have anything near the, um, I, I guess, the, the amount of experience and time that you, you've put into this stuff, but we're both um, meditators with with a, with a practice and we're, we're sort of keen, keen to share and learn and grow and, and so forth in the, the spirit of sort of mutual adventuring that you mentioned in MCTB, uh, which right. is... Mastering the teachings of the Buddha. Yeah. So, wow. (laughs) Uh, Perhaps I could kick off by just mentioning kind of where where we're at in in the world right now in in 2020. For anyone listening back to this in the in the the future, we are in the midst. Me and Jasmine are uh, both in London, and and we're in the midst of a COVID 19 lockdown. We're a month into it now. I'm not actually in a beautiful forest, but I'm stuck in my home. And I've uh, <laughs> been for mostly for four weeks, but from trips to the shops to buy food and things. So um, it's, it's very strange. I, I listened to your interview with Steve James, and that was really interesting on, on the, the kind of your, your background in what do you call it?
1: Epidemiology.
0: Um, epidemiology. Uh, and and emergency um, medicine. Yeah, yeah. And that was fascinating. So I just wanted to frame it with, with that Moment in time that we're that we're all in and I'm aware that lots of listeners will be This will be foremost on their mind right now Some of them will have a meditation practice some of them won't For for those who are maybe getting started with meditation or thinking about it or they have a practice already. What would your advice be to them?
1: So advice for people who don't have practices and those who do all of them?
0: Oh, that's General yeah, advice? maybe a bit of an
1: overly broad question. Um, uh, yeah, I'm sorry. It would be yeah. great if you could narrow that down a bit. Where's I, I the... don't even know where to begin with that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so so typically, you... when I when I give yeah. people meditation advice, the first thing I do is I ask a lot of questions. Yeah. And that process might be an hour or an hour and a half or even two hours and I like to get their story. It's good to know where they're coming from, what they've tried, what they like, what they're trying to do, how they think about practice, what, mm, mm. how they conceptualize it, what it means to them, and what the resources are, and their psychological health, and their, yeah. their lifestyle choices. And so there's a, a huge amount that goes into any conversation about what should you know people might want to be doing. And so it's extremely difficult to do anything like that to a general audience. Yeah. Particularly yeah. one that might have some breadth to it. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I think well, that's really interesting that you go almost like a consultant's point of view, uh, or like as a, like a, how someone might advise, like, let's say a personal trainer, you know, like if you're asking someone for a new regime or like to create something like what what where is your desired purpose and I feel as though maybe I might be wrong from my experience people often don't have that take so it's, it's really refreshing actually to hear that you you do and taking into consideration where this person's really coming from um but that's only because I feel like you understand just the range of practices available at the moment.
1: And um, also the, something of the range of practitioners, I continue yeah, to that routinely <laughs> be surprised at people who fall outside my conceptions of the range. But still, I've now been talking to people about meditation for over two decades at length. And there is quite a diversity out there of perspectives, goals, capabilities, strengths, weaknesses, all of that
2: what would be and if
1: you if you don't take that into account it's it's easy to say something that really if you thought about it for another five minutes would not make any sense <laughs>
2: yeah <laughs> what i would find interesting is then to ask maybe what are some of the goals you might be working on or like where are you in your practice right now i don't know if it's, you'd like to even disclose that you might even decline i don't know but that sure, would sure no
1: I'm, I'm happy to talk about pretty much whatever so open it up wide go deep go as deep as you want to Um, My own practice, well, it depends on how you conceive of practice. So I think of three trainings, morality, concentration, wisdom, three broad categories. And I did a lot of wisdom training, which is what I started off with kind of first. And I guess I had done some ethical and concentration stuff along the way sort of too, but not as formally. And then I did a tremendous amount of wisdom. And then I sort of started filling in the others in some sort of of reverse progression kind of way. And I got very good at... Deep meditation practices, it's true. I spent you know, a lot of time on retreats and practicing very hard and got good at those and made some upgrades to consciousness that were cool and seemed to be lasting as much as anything lasts in this strange world. And then what's left at that point is largely aesthetics. So the specifics of one's life, the ordinary day-to-day things are the important thing and how that relates to this interconnected world. And so a lot of my practice these days is an active practice of service. So I take calls and answer emails basically every day, at least one of those, and or respond to forum posts and or do something else that is helping to create content or support other people's practice. And so that's an act of service that I do. Um, And I don't even take donations for that. So that's all just something I do for free. I also um, try to connect people together. So I do a lot of networking where I'm trying to figure out how people can get the kind of support they need built more organically into their life with peer networks and friends that are all exploring together that have a a very different feel than the sort of teacher-student hierarchies that a lot of people Routinely deal with. So networking people is a big part of my practice these days. And that wasn't probably what you were expecting. You were probably expecting <laughs> the meditation end. So, so I'll get there. I'll get there. But, but most of my time, like I you know, I work, you know, six, eight, 10 hour days pretty much every day. If you ask my wife, she will tell you, um, in some annoyed way, how much time I'd simply spend here in this room, either writing or recording or editing or responding or talking or whatever it is, trying to help support practice. And so then in my own meditation practice, for example, I've done two three-week fire casino retreats just this year. So I did three weeks in southern Germany, and then I was in London and Cambridge for a week, and then I did three more weeks in Hereford um, on your beautiful little island, and then scurried out right as the borders were all closing and the flights were all ending
2: wow. <laughs> and
1: came home here to <laughs> Alabama, where I've now spent a month doing a lot of preparation and but also creative projects and helping people. And so in terms of practice, I love Fire Casino. It continues to give me rich and fascinating rewards. I love the journeying that I do with close friends and, and we go deep together and we share meals and we talk and we practice together. That sharing, it, uh, that sort of social context is an extremely vital and important part of my practice for me these days thinking about bigger organizational issues, so thinking about networking researchers together, thinking about interfacing with sort of bigger meditation movements, and thinking about some of the politics actually takes a reasonable amount of mind time these days. Uh, Thinking about the science, the literature, um, how to get various messages out there, and then how to empower bigger groups of people to help with that work. So it's very hard to do anything like all those things alone, but with more connected groups, it becomes possible. And so building those networks of friends and expertise and interest to help uh, raise the level of dialogue a little bit is a big part of what I do each day. And then finally, my daily meditation practice. So what ends up happening these days is I'm basically working all day long, is at the end of a very long day, uh, um, I sit down in my bed, and sit there and practice and go through some insight cycles and stages and sometimes the mind inclines to deeper geronic experiences and whatever happens happens that's cool there's a lot of nice tracks my mind has these days that it likes to go down and it'll pick one and go down it and at some point to go okay time to go to sleep and then i lay down and go to sleep and get up and do it all again So that's sort of what my practice is looking like these days. But if you want to ask anything about any of that, go ahead, or we can talk about something else as you prefer.
0: Could could you just briefly um, outline the fire casino for, for listeners who haven't come across that?
1: Sure. So the first thing I would say is go to www.firekasin.a.org, which hopefully you can put links in the description somewhere.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But
1: what you will find there is a practice which is old. This comes out of, it looks like it was actually pre-Buddhist. So it looks like they were doing casino practices before the Buddha. As far as I can tell from the texts, these are practices that were already in existence. And you would take one of the elements like fire, water, earth, air, or space, or... Um, a color, such as white or blue or red or yellow, and you would make a disc out of it or look at a fire or look at a bowl of water. Mm. And you you would just stare at it and then close your eyes and you would get some kind of image and you would try to concentrate on that image. And then eventually you've got nothing and you open your eyes and you look at the the casino again. So a casino is a poly word that means an external image uses a support for concentration or an external Mm. thing. Like a, you could use like a tomato. You could use whatever mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the light on your phone. Just don't look at it too long. It's pretty bright. But what we tend to do is use a candle. So it's a very simple practice. And what I like are simple practices done in high dose. Mm-hmm. And what you do is you take, in this case, a candle. You put it like about here. You look at the flame for a minute or two. You close your eyes. You see something. Usually for most people, it's a red dot or some purpley stuff or something. Whatever it is, it doesn't matter. And you focus on that. With as much of your attention as you can bring to it, and it'll do various things, wander, move around, change, disappear, reappear, change colors, whatever, doesn't matter at all. And you follow that, just building concentration on the visuals, however they go, and then at some point you have nothing you want to concentrate on. You open your eyes, you look at the flame again, you close your eyes, and you do that again. And if you do that again and again and again and again and again, again, very, very simple, For, you know, 6, 10, 12, 14 hours a day, very quickly, stuff starts getting quite weird and really interesting and gets into territory that is a curious mix of deep concentration territory, insight stage territory, magical powers territory, and experiences that for a lot of people have had experiences with psychedelics, very reminiscent of some of those sorts of experiences. So that's a a delightful practice to explore. And it continues to produce rich rewards that I wouldn't have even known to ask for. But each time I do it, it gives me something else new and interesting. And I continue to be grateful for it. So I keep doing it.
2: Can I ask a I didn't actually feel like I would ask a a question based on meditation. um, but what would you say for people who maybe are quite sensitive to let's say if they've been practicing meditation in general and maybe see colors and so on. But I've had experiences where I feel like I've gone somewhere and then brought something back. And once it was like, I felt like I brought back um, a demon, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, And in navigating that kind of a space what would you say to people who maybe don't have a formal teacher? Like, would you stay away from like magical realms such as that? Like, I know a lot of people have this, like, I really want to have like cool experiences. Like, <laughs> like, for me, that had really taken me away and brought me to actually Vipassana, which was just very much in the body. So I knew that I wasn't going anywhere and it was very grounded. And I'm wondering...
1: Tell me yeah. something more about the demon experience, if that's yeah, okay. So,
2: yeah. So I was actually doing a um, pranayama style practice um, incorporating uh, – so it focusing on various different chakras. So you would initially start from the base uh, chakra, and then you, after doing a set of breathing, focus on the top, and then slowly you would make your way up. And then you lie down and – uh initially it was a normal practice for me i was uh with my cousin and my sister it's a practice where you hold hands with one another and my cousin was for the first time practicing and he said he went into like a really really deep space so he wasn't even expecting that because he thought it was just going to be a normal peaceful calming uh experience my sister also had a deep experience mine was nothing out of the ordinary Normal, very deep, calming states. And when we came out of it, my sister left the room, and my cousin and I felt we could both feel in that corner there was something staring at us, and it had this very ominous presence. And we were, it was terrifying, like to not be able to see something but be terrified by it.
1: How long ago was that?
2: That was maybe four years ago, five years ago, maybe six years ago, yeah.
1: What kind of religious or meditative background were you coming from at that point?
2: Um, I think very explorative, exploratory, yeah. Um, I was just doing various different practices. I, I had went to Bali maybe a year or a year and a half before that and experienced a lot of magical occurrences where I met for example nymphs in my mind space and uh, had conversations with them to uh seeing no like having no thoughts at all and couldn't bring any thoughts to mind uh long periods of time where I just had calming states so it was very a mishmash of things from sacred geometry to inner um I Think it was called in the light, and then another mm-hmm. one which was sound based, and so on. So, there was so
1: you were doing some magical practices,
2: yeah. And I didn't realize that at that point there was a magical practice.
1: Um, <laughs> talking to nymphs, not magical, that's interesting. Okay,
2: <laughs> yeah. Um, and then as it unfolded, I just realized that maybe I might be too overactive in my third eye space. I, I, I didn't actually know, so I started looking not practicing because every time I did thereafter I would get very cold and start getting ill and it was it was it was slightly odd
1: hmm and have you read the maps that talk about a stage called the arising and passing away
2: um I haven't read any maps
1: so if you're entering territory that you find disorienting or confusing some people though not everyone find the maps helpful Okay. And so if you're Bill interested... did
2: tell me recently to look at the maps. And so, Yeah,
1: if you're interested, you might find the maps normalizing and explanatory. <coughs> a lot of people do. That's why they're there. They're obviously not the territory, but still having a heads up of the range of possibilities can be pretty useful. So um, back to the original question of demons. <laughs> so that's one of the things we talk about like on day one of a fire casino retreat. We talk about it on the website. We talk, we have reports of people's encounters with things that they um, describe as demons, think are demons, feel like demons, you know, look like demons, might just be demons. Yeah. So obviously we've just lost some people. Just by saying anything like that, you're you're going to alienate (laughs) a portion of your audience. And I recognize that. Apologies for whatever I've just done for people who are not so into that demon thing.
2: Yeah. (laughs)
1: And so the problem is, though, is if you do magical practices, magical results can arise. And if you look at old magical books like grimoires, which are old magical texts, the vast majority of them are talking about entities and demons. That's where most of the magical party is for a lot of Western and Eastern magic as well. So if you go to Thailand, there's spirit houses all over the place. There is... Um, amulets that protect you against spirits. If you go to most countries that have sort of more uh, indigenous or animistic or traditions, you will find those. And even Buddhism, original traditional Buddhism is chock-a-block full of entities. Way more descriptions of interactions with entities than there are descriptions of insight practice, like no comparison. Mm. And so you will find that these traditions expect those experiences. Like, of course, you're going to have interactions or you very well may have interactions with entities. The first time the living kindness practices were taught was actually to deal with some troublesome nature spirits that were harassing and scaring some monks. And Interesting. this About is just that. considered par for the course. Like, And when you do fire casino or another similar practice where you're visualizing and or using a mantra... It's oddly common to have some sort of entity experience if you do that long enough. Mm. And some of the entities are benign or sort of vague, you may not see them, you may have a tricky time figuring out what they are, but sometimes they can actually be very full-blown, as realistic as waking life in full detail, like the best computer graphics or even better and seem like living entities. And then the range of advice for dealing with that is a vast topic. And if we, we want to talk demonology and, you know, proper demon etiquette and, you know, various <laughs> schools of thought and how to deal with them, I could do a whole podcast on that. And that might be fascinating. <laughs> you would certainly yeah. get a very interesting early audience uh, <laughs> by, by doing that. But the point is that, um, then you have to sort of ask yourself, do you want to live in a magical universe? Yeah, right. And it's not like everybody has a choice, because sometimes our practices don't give us a choice in that. Mm. This is just what's showing up, and we have to deal with it. But to some reasonable degree, you sort of get to choose, so it appears, from a relative point of view. And so, shutting down visualization, shutting down things—you know—just explicitly making resolutions for these things to go away. Doing active banishings, even of the most primitive kind, like "Hey, you, no, shove <laughs> off." Yeah. I'm trying to use a polite term here, and. Something like that. Right? So, or then do you send loving kindness to these entities? Do you wish them wisdom and appreciation of karma so they will have skillful actions and get a better rebirth? Do you know what, what's, the, what's the traditional advice you follow? So, Buddhism would actually often recommend loving kindness practices. That's what the Buddha recommended. And um, teaching them the dharma, can you teach them wisdom? And other people would say, no, it's a demon. You need to treat it like you would treat an intruder into your psychic space or your house or something and be more forceful. And, and I can, you know, depending on circumstances and what's going on, and I can make arguments for lots of different possible reactions, it's a long topic again. But these things happen. And so if you're kind of freaked out by living in a world where there might be demons or entities or other experiences like that, then you might want to avoid some of the magical practices. Though, in truth, some of my more profound experiences doing Fire Casino actually came out of some very, very weird and sometimes scary and concerning encounters with what appeared to be entities from a magical point of view. And so there can be a lot of richness and discovery there. There can also be some weird and not nice consequences. And it's, uh, again, a huge topic. But going into it without any training, without any heads up, without any warning, obviously, is incredibly disorienting for people, which is why on our websites and in the books, I try to give some basic advice and refer people on to other sources that go into more depth and detail about those kinds of topics, because these are... Areas of exploration that definitely benefit from having some theory and some tools and some frameworks, or a range of these things, a range of traditions to draw on, to have something more in your pocket than just "oh my golly, I don't know what to do with that."
0: It, this is so, fascinating, yes, and it, it,
1: a study definitely helps. I think it as reminds with most areas me of, of
0: life. Mm-hmm. Sorry, your, your story. So we, we've talked about this before. Uh, it's spooky, and I never mentioned, but it actually reminds me of stuff that happened to me in my in my teens and I I was I got very ill one time with a fever and had the most terrifying experience with something with an entity of some kind that you, just you mentioned you mentioned that the, the loving kindness thing i didn't know that that was when buddha first sort of introduced it in the sutta i yeah how to deal with these <laughs> these forest entities you've got trouble with teach them teach them um the dharma through loving kindness or something it's brilliant and, and and that kind of something like that happened with me back then in terms of how i dealt with that experience it it freaked me out for like i don't know a week or a month and eventually I had this kind of spontaneous oh like I could just like treat it with kindness experience and it completely transformed my relationship to it it might have taken a whole year I don't remember how, how that played out but it went from being like the most awful terrifying thing ever to something that I'd kind of come to terms with through that process and it yeah, it's it's just very strange. Now you, you now you mentioned that it just really brought it up. I haven't really thought about that stuff for twenty five years or so, but there was there was a thing. <laughs>
1: what was happened. the experience like? Can you describe it? Uh,
0: yeah, I, I mean, um, so I, I don't know how much you know my um, kind of cultural background shaped the experience, but I, I've I've got a very strong memory of of kind of stepping out of my bedroom um, at. And being in a bit of a daze and then encountering this thing on the landing that was, I just remember that, like the muscle tone on it was like a like a bulldog or, or a Rottweiler. Like, you, you know when you've mm-hmm. got muscles that are just like, you can mm-hmm. see every vein and it's like, this really like pulsing, dangerous thing. Mm-hmm. And, and it looked like, I guess, um, uh, a six-foot demon on my landing um, with, I remember it being kind of, Brown, basically, mm. kind of, kind of dark, blood red, brown, and um, it, it was the most terrifying thing ever. It just kind of completely freaked me the hell out. <laughs> I did not know sense. what was going on. I was deep in this fever, and and it just kind of—I don't remember how it, what literally happened in that moment, but I think I backed off and, and kind of collapsed back into a daze in bed, and and then had to kind of figure out how to deal with that experience over the next few weeks because it kind of stayed with me it was like well like any terrifying thing it sticks with you it's kind of post-traumatic stress or whatever and it, it was just one of those kind of nightmare moments that that happened when i was awake but in this kind of fevered days and yeah just it, yeah, anyway you brought it back to me there <laughs> but the, the meta thing's fascinating right
1: yeah. yeah, absolutely. And so now, when you look back on that, what what do you think of it? Have you had anything like that since then? Has it informed your practice? Has it? Have you related it to anything else?
0: I think, if anything, it's it's it hasn't informed like direct um, meditative practice because I haven't gone spaces like that in meditation. So, so my background, uh, I initially. Got into meditation really well. I had a kind of uh, alternative upbringing. I was around ashrams and chanting and meditation and things, so I picked up on it as a kid and and had some some very exciting experiences that might have been a and arising and passing type things. This is meditation map stuff. Look at, look at Daniel's book if you this doesn't make any sense.
1: Sort of a peak experience usually, a yeah. well, big first opening. Some people call it Kundalini awakening or. Yeah, a lot of names for it, but...
0: Yeah, went through a few of those kind of things. a kind of jhanic thing when I was in my teens and uh, an absorption state. Um, And then got into, got really heavily into meditation in my 20s via um, Goenka's Vipassana centers and, and did several retreats in that tradition, like a half dozen retreats and served a bit and so forth. And that was absent, entities and and so forth it was it was quite straightforward kind of insight practice and it didn't lead to any of that stuff for me but it has there's something about the dream world that it has influenced and i think that it it relates to how i relate to dreams that there's there's something in there that I, i do encounter things in dreams as everyone does essentially everyone everyone encounters other people and the memories and all the rest of it and and perhaps entities also in in dreams and it's definitely it is that that's that was sort of my introduction to that almost in in my memory at least of of how i deal with that and i i can remember it shaping that kind of attitude of shifting from like just terror and 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 revulsion and to how can i be kind to this thing and change this experience into something better and, and and that seems to be remarkably powerful, at least in in my own kind of lucid or near lucid dream states.
1: Nice.
0: I'd love to dig more into this casino stuff, but I, I still there's a question nagging at me that I was trying to phrase earlier. I think, which was, so you kind of touched on it briefly, Jasmine, in terms of, so is any dose of meditation safe? And if someone was listening to this who is new to meditation and, they're, and they're, in, they're stuck in their home in lockdown and they're thinking about meditating. If they, well, what would your thoughts be on that? Perhaps you could expand on that.
1: Yeah. So I think I'm going to give a little bit of background to what I think is behind your question, if that's yeah. all right. Go so the it. background to this is that the insight meditation maps, which are oddly reproducible and strangely predictive for a lot of people, mm. they have a range of presentations, just like anything, predict, some specific stages that are not as much fun as the you know, glowing, happy women in their mid-30s and leotards on magazine covers <laughs> <laughs> necessarily um, seem to be uh, promoting. And these stages can sometimes actually be profoundly disturbing and very troubling, as some of what y'all are uh, describing can be scary, involve weird, energetic, magical experiences, involve mood alteration, involve strange movements involve odd perceptual changes and can mimic various illnesses and sorting all that out can be complicated and so the problem there, there are a few problems with the question is any dose of meditation safe yeah and the first uh point is that nothing is safe entirely yeah. so nothing we do is entirely safe Right, So I don't know if there's some contamination in this water. I just had my water line open yesterday and they were doing some work on it. Did some contamination get in it? Yeah. No, I'm drinking something dangerous. I don't know. Maybe. Is the air now entirely safe to breathe from coronavirus? No. Is stepping outside your door even entirely safe? Is picking up a package or getting the mail entirely safe? No. Is driving a car safe or even riding Mm -hmm. on the metro or Mm -hmm. underground or whatever safe? No. So the point is, you have to say safer than what, or less, more or less safe than what is just sitting around as a couch potato watching TV safe? Well, no. It's your your muscle atrophying, maybe gaining weight. You could get all kinds of weird images, and who knows if that's entirely safe? Strange propaganda. There's plenty of it going around these days, (laughs) (laughs) right? Is that safe for your brain and your 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 heart and mind and all that in your society? Not necessarily. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, is is Instagram safe? I don't know. Plenty of people, it's all kinds of things that might be be safe. So it's relative. So I would also say that no dose of meditation is entirely safe. But so, so we're adults. We we realize that everything we do involves some degree of risk. Just, I've, I've in the, I, so I'm also an A&E doctor, as you would call them, or emergency yeah. medicine physician, as we would call it here. And though I retired two years ago, I spent a long time practicing and I took care of a lot of patients and I would take care of people say, I was just walking down the sidewalk and all of a sudden I twisted my ankle and their leg is now broken. Mm. You're like, that didn't seem that dangerous. And yet, you know, or they were just doing the simplest of things and just, you know, bent over to pick up a napkin that had fallen on the floor and blew out a disc in their back. And you're like, really, really? Yeah. Yeah, Really? (laughs) So you don't know. So putting this in perspective, meditation, not entirely safe. It can cause weird mood instability. It can cause some very strange experiences, both highs and lows. It can cause things that look a lot like mental illness. And that said, it can also be extremely transformative, just like an exercise program. When you go to exercise, you recognize you could pull muscles, you could hurt yourself. You know, if you're jogging, you could get hit by a car or sprain your ankle. Whatever you're doing that seems like it might be good for you could end up being bad for you. And meditation is like that also. Mm-hmm. You're changing the code while the operating system is running in your brain. That doesn't always go so well, uh, sometimes in the short term and occasionally in the long term. But it's the kind of thing that if you're going to go into it, I think you should have more information. So I very much advocate for um, as something kind of from the medical model discussing with patients the risks, benefits, and alternatives, what we call the RBAs. So this is what might happen if we do this that's bad. This is what we might happen if we do this that's good, like some procedure or some surgery or give you some antibiotic or whatever it is. And these are the other possible options that you have. Well, unfortunately, meditation is kind of just like being alive, just with a little more attention to it, except that being alive while you're paying attention is sort of meditative. So tons of things we do are already meditative. So from a certain point of view, you're already low-level meditating. If you're just paying attention while you're brushing your teeth, if you're just tuning into your body and relaxing stuff as you're going to sleep, as as you're doing anything, there is reality, there is experience. You're relating to it with some degree of attention or awareness or concentration. You're paying attention to what's going on. And so life, from a certain point of view, is already intrinsically kind of semi-meditative. But some things are clearly more so Mm. Right? Some things seem to produce more reliable meditation effects and depths of concentration and stillness and wisdom and insight and clarity and precision of mind and acceptance and all of the things that we hopefully try to cultivate in our meditation practices. Well, plenty of other real-world activities are already doing plenty of those. And so the problem is, even by having no formal meditation, life experiences can throw you into insight stages, and routinely do. Actually, the yeah. vast majority of people I know who I talk with got into insight stages before they started doing formal practice rather than the other way around. And when I say formal insight meditation stages, I'm really talking about crossing the arising and passing away, the stage we've mentioned which can involve openings of consciousness and initial highs, though for some people it's scary and um, troubling. And So that also happened to me. I had almost no formal meditation training as a kid, and I got into these experiences, and so have a number of family members, and it sounds like so have a number of you. Even if you had some light training as a kid, you were still like, you're just kind of playing around with a lot of it, probably. And plenty of people wand, wander off and they do a yoga course and it involves some breathing and stillness and meditation, or they take a psychedelic and they don't really think of it as a meditative thing. They were just out partying and they wanted to have some fun, some weird experiences, and all of a sudden they find themselves in territory that is traditional, you know, spiritual territory dealing with traditional insight stages when that's not really what they signed up for. And so life, it, it can do this. And so is any of this is being conscious safe? No. Um, in <laughs> fact, being explicitly being born is not safe. If The outcome is guaranteed to be something not good. <laughs> <laughs> and so all that said, if you're going into meditation, I would highly recommend you read something of the maps. So I'm going to, again, plug my own works because I can't help it. www.mctb.org, where you will find my book for free, Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha. Or if you want to pay something, you can um, go online and buy a print copy. Fine. Um, And all of that money I use for other Dharma projects, I don't actually keep any of it for myself, it all goes into something creative or something to help produce content or editing, you know, further, you know, versions of whatever document or something like that. So I use all that money, I give it all back, so I'm not doing any of this for the cash... And so you can find lots of information there. Chapter 30, in particular, is the one that talks extensively about the maps, and it references a whole bunch of other books, such as A Path with Heart by Jack Cornfield, which I highly recommend, that also give takes on this territory just in somewhat different voices and with different emphases. And hopefully that will give you a sense of what you might be headed for just by being alive, but more likely headed for if you start going into specifically spiritual
0: experiences and practices. That leads really nicely to another another question that I have on on the maps. So the the maps, Daniel, the maps. I know that you found the Theravadan tradition. So this is for anyone who doesn't know this, well perhaps you could introduce what the Theravadan Theravada, tradition. If you wanna okay, Theravadin.
1: Theravadan,
0: however you pronounce this stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't know. The Theravadan thing. And why, why do you think that their maps are, are particularly useful or they've been particularly useful for you?
1: Hmm. So each religious tradition has its strengths and weaknesses, the things they do well and the things that maybe they don't do quite as well. And while lots of people like to think of their tradition as doing all of the things the best, in truth, that's not true. None of them have it all totally together. Sorry for the Theravada or anybody else that I'm then disparaging. But the thing that I think the Theravada, one of the things that it does unusually well is clear, straightforward, relatively non-dogmatic conceptual frameworks that have a certain almost modernity to them. That have a certain technical lexicon-like quality to them, that have a certain organization and precision of thought that you really don't see in quite the same way in any other religious or spiritual tradition. And it's not that lots of other spiritual traditions don't have a lot of good, technical, precise information in them. They do. But I have looked at every single one I can find, and nobody holds a candle to the Theravada when it comes to clear, actionable, technical, descriptive, phenomenological language that is reproducible, that holds up today, and has almost some of that clinical diagnostic quality that I do love about medicine. Mm. So one of the great things about medicine is it's been willing to just describe diseases and health and wellness and molecules and treatments, and to study them and to refine that and to try to come up with frameworks that for all the problems with allopathic medicine that are vast. And as we all know, that said, that is one of the things that it really, as part of its ethos and aesthetic, tries to do well. Mm. In that same way, the Theravada prides itself on clear maps, clear descriptions, clear lists, and having a certain straightforward, non-flowery, non-poetic, but just kind of technical, down-to-earth, clear vocabulary for describing experience, reality, and practice that nobody else touches. it's like the Tibetan Buddhism, as elaborate and grand and vast as it is, doesn't have that clear, simple, down-to-earthness that the Theravada, is. Zen, nothing close to it, poetic, beautiful, mysterious, interesting, quirky, yes, but clear and technical. No, Vedanta, uh, like, you know, the, the interesting maps of, um, like the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. Great. And they have, they tr- sort of try for something. That, but they still don't match it. And again, I don't mean to be all tradition comparative. Or my tradition is better than yours. There are lots of things that all of those other traditions do very well, mm. but maybe the Theravada doesn't do as well. Mm. But on this particular topic, nobody else holds a candle. And still today, modern neurophenomenology, modern spiritual maps, attempts to describe this territory, they still haven't topped it. And so, from my point of view, twenty you know twenty three to twenty two hundred years later, the Theravada still wins. They, and if somebody's and I, I say this a lot, and it annoys people, and yet I continue <laughs> to put out the challenge. Well, if you've got something that's actually better, show me, bring yeah. it. Yeah. And Why nobody do you think does. it people? Because people don't like the fact that some tradition might have stuff their tradition doesn't, because most people are coming from a tradition. They have a loyalty to their guru or their teacher or their conceptions of spiritual practice. And that's most of the people that are probably going to be listening to this. And they may have biases against maps and they may not like it being all cookbooky and technical. And they just like it to be free and open. And it's all their unique journey, which for better or for worse is actually not true. So when you keep, when you listen to lots of people describe meditative territory more and more and more to me, it just all sounds like the same thing. You know, it's kind of like in clinical medicine. Appendicitis is just appendicitis. You know, this person's yeah. got pneumonia. This person's got this. And while there's some variants and interesting things about each of those, you know, this is just that. This is just that. And in the same way, this is just the A&P. This is just the dark night. This is just equanimity. And you see them again and again and again. And it becomes sort of routine, like, OK, here's this thing, just like you'd expect in the, in the order, in the sequence. And yeah, with some variants and variations that you pretty quickly learn. And then it all just looks like the same old territory. And that also rankles people who really want to be so unique and powerful and profound and special to them. But it isn't. There's not much new under the sun. And while there are some interesting.
2: Yeah. So, like, people might still, like, it might still follow the guidelines, but it doesn't make it, like, any less special, you know? Like, I feel like it shouldn't take away from the person's experience because it's been said. Yes. Just because you go to a theme park and you see, like, I don't know, like, um, uh, Thought Park, which we have just because you've been on the ride doesn't take away like from any other ride that anyone else has been. It's odd. I I find it. I agree.
1: And yet the, the maps really annoy some people. As a person who spent a lot of time advocating for the maps and talking to people about the maps, some people react to them quite strongly and negatively. Mm. And so I've got to acknowledge that. And they, they don't work for everybody. For, for some people, mm. they become an annoying source of comparison, of self-judgment, of second-guessing, of striving, of future mm. mind, of mm. competition. I've seen all of those in spades, and they detract from people's meditative experiences, they try to take grand phenomena and cram them into dark little boxes. In fact, literally just before we started recording this, what I was writing this morning was an essay on how someone had tried to cram a bunch of beautiful fire casino practices into some old maps that really didn't fit them and how painful it was to read those descriptions when the fire casino practices can be quite profound and beautiful just on their own and don't really need to be crammed into mappy terminology all the time. So I myself Mm -hmm. can have those same sorts of anti-map reactions when I don't think they're used well or appropriately or where they seem to detract rather than enhance. Mm -hmm. So all true. But that said, plenty of people getting into this territory would have benefited from a heads up of to the weird stuff that could be possible. Or if it starts happening to them, to have normalizing frameworks and realize they're not alone, that this stuff may have been well described, that they may not be broken or crazy, or mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. even if they are kind of crazy, it may be a kind of crazy that was sort of expected, or at least something that's been described. And here's what you might be able to do about it. Because not only have they spent 2,300, 2,500 years exploring this territory, they've also given a lot of advice that's come down both in written and oral form about how to handle some of the strange territory. And then in contemporary times, me and my colleagues have spent countless thousands of hours and countless thousands of words um, exploring, reading about, and helping people to navigate in this territory, seeing what works, seeing what doesn't, seeing what's helpful, and how you can sort of predict what might be better for someone. And that refined terminology and technology is incredibly helpful for people as they, the people who Im, Im, have a capacity or an interest or an aesthetic that allows embracing it, show again and again in their own lives.
0: Fascinating. I, I wanted to just dig in into that really. So to frame the question, my background, as I mentioned, is, is via the, the Goenka Vipassana lot, which is basically the, the Theravadan thing right it's, you know he, he was taught by someone Burmese and it was sort of part of that thing okay i know it's yeah, it's adjacent it's if the theravada is this yeah 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 the is that
1: <laughs> okay. and a strangely selected amount of that
0: Yes, which, of which I've become aware in the, in the, the past six months. There's and some cool been...
1: things about Goenka, but it's, it's also extremely artificially limited and dogmatically and rigidly so in a way that yeah. even excludes a lot of important Theravadan map technology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is yeah. weird because it largely came out of um, Uba Kin, yeah, who was teaching mostly from the Visuddhi Maga, which is the most elaborate description of these maps we have in the old texts and commentaries. Right. And yet the Goenka st- Refuses the tradition refuses to normalize this for people and tell them what's happened to them when their consciousness explodes and they're there and freaking out, yeah, which happens by the thousands, yeah, every year, and they refuse to tell people about this stuff despite the fact that they know these maps and they even come straight out of the, the ter- tradition they come from, which is so yeah. ironic, and it's like, what are you doing, kids? Come on.
0: Yeah, 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 totally. So, uh, I mean, it, it was a real revelation for me getting into your work and, and, and people like Kenneth Fogues around you on the maps and it seemed to instantly frame a lot of my experiences really well. Oh, well, yeah. And I, the, so the, my big question about this is, I suppose, maps versus territory and, and how, how much scripting do you think goes on when, when, when you've got a map as as i now have i've uh, you know I've re- read read your books and looked at the looked at the some of the early suitors on this stuff and and now now i can see uh, i'm just wondering like how much do you think it scripts people basically and uh, you've been through this right okay
1: so all the criticisms of the maps are true yeah every single one of them the, the scripting, the expectation, the detracting from experience, mm. the future mind, the striving, mm. you know the, the comp- comparison and competition, the arrogance, the misapplication, the total overcalling and undercalling of their practice, yeah. the needless terror, the um, unnatural fascination, all, all of the things every single person who who says you know detracts from the use of the maps and thinks they should be kept secret every single single thing they 're saying is true all of them so so good on you, people who hate the maps and want to keep them secret and <laughs> you know, not tell anybody about them you 're right yeah, totally that said that said, the other side is also true, yeah. and the other side is that they can normalize, they can be incredibly stabilizing, pr- provide access to a large amount of technology, be deeply intellectually satisfying help connect you to other traditions, to other maps, to other teachers, give a, a conceptual language and lexicon for mm. describing experiences that allows conveying of information much more efficiently, sometimes assuming that they're used well, and all of that. So, so both are true. It's kind of like allopathic medicine, which I know a yeah. lot about but it was yeah. for about 20 years. Allopathic medicine. Amazing. We save lives. We stomp out disease. We do all these incredible things and we cause all these problems. Every time I give somebody an antibiotic, I cringe. Am I going to cause an allergic reaction? Am I going to give them Stillman Johnson syndrome or Clostridium difficile? Am I going to kill them? It happens, right? And so like, you know, when when you're doing this stuff, you recognize I'm doing something good. At the same time, I'm doing something bad. And the maps are that. And that said, most of the time, I still think the maps their benefits outweigh their downsides. And so I still advocate for them, but I advocate for them, again, with appropriate qualifiers. So I'm willing to talk about both the good and bad sides of the maps, just like the rest of it, you know, risk mm-hmm. alternatives. Mm-hmm alternatives to the maps are crashing around in territory with no idea what the hell is going on and i've gotten to talk to literally hundreds if not thousands of people i think thousands by this point yeah. and read thousands of forum posts of people who for example went a 10 day Goanka retreat crossed the arising and passing away all the energetics and amazing stuff hit the dark night which follows it like lightning sorry like thunder follows lightning yeah. and then freaked out and wrecked their lives right yeah just, the dharma overground has literally thousands of these people on it you know who, who didn't have that normalized didn't have the Explain. We're not expecting that. They just expected to get calm or have an interesting experience or their friends said it was really cool. So they did it. And then here they are crashing around in territory that is well known. And yet the tradition steadfastly refuses to tell them about, ouch, right? And I think that's dangerous. And I think that yeah. you know, just having a blanket policy that nobody gets to know this, we're not going to tell people about it, even though they know it. It's. I mean, it's straight out of the books they came from. It's straight out of the Burmese Theravada they came yeah. from. Yeah. Actually it's way pre-Burmese, but loved generally loved and appreciated by a lot of Burmese teachers and very much a part of Burmese meditation culture. There are exceptions, but yeah mostly. And so that's, that I just, uh, I'm, I'm extremely frustrated that it's a tradition that seems to have no capacity to revise itself and to do something that I think is more ethical and skillful. And that's frustrating because mm-hmm. there's lots that's great about Goenka. They keep the money clean, right? They're teaching good basic techniques. They, mm. they, they do some things that I really like. And they make it accessible to so many people. So yeah. good on them. Yeah. Except can, can you just step up your game a little bit and, and use stuff that came straight out of the books that your tradition came out of and the, you know come on
0: not that yeah, yeah yeah i, I mean I, I found it very mysterious also it, it's it's been a, a, a big source of confusion for me since i since i started reading this stuff i've just been like Dan, why didn't they tell us? <laughs> yes. <laughs> why? It's, it's the same tradition. He was taught by people who have that in their books. Right. Why? <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah, complete mystery to me. I mean, well, I, I mean I've, I've got some, some guesses on, on why it might have happened. Uh, and I mean, some of the stuff that I, I've heard you talking about and how in the Burmese tradition they just found that if they just taught noting to people, then some, for some people that was enough. They could get mm-hmm. lay people in the temples. They would just teach them how to note, and job done. They would they would kind of get awakened in in yeah. six weeks or something.
2: Mm-hmm. And when you mean just noting,
0: go ahead and explain, Daniel. You know better than me on okay, this. Okay,
1: so so it'd be like. So this is straight out of Mahasi Saidao practice, which comes out of a sutra in the Majimini Kaya, middle-length discourses of the Buddha, called One by One as They Occurred. And basically what you do is you make a one-word note of what's going on. So if your breath is rising, you just go rising. If it's falling, you go falling. If you're thinking, you note thinking. If your mind is wandering, you note wandering. If you experience pain you experience, you note pain if you're experiencing pleasure you note pleasure if you're and you try to keep the notes relatively simple so you don't you know but don't get too neurotic about it and you just note this is what's going on this is what's going on it basically turns the thinking mind instead of into your enemy to something of your friend that helps keep you grounded in experience and it's a very powerful technique it's the technique that got me a lot of my early insights i'm incredibly grateful for it and a big fan but it doesn't work that well for everyone. And some people need some more, but some people, you just tell them to note and they note and they wake up straightforward if they can just follow simple instructions. And so if you're interested in this kind of practice, you could look at a book called Practical Insight Meditation, which you can find for free online by Mahasi Sayadaw. And it'll give you simple instructions, and you can follow them. That said, some people need more than that. they need more guidance. they need other frameworks and conceptualizations and some psychological stuff and lots of other answers to their theoretical questions and handholding, and maybe, you know, parents or something anyway, sorry. <laughs> they need a bunch more, and that won't be enough for them. But it is true that if you give that to some people, then they will make really good progress in an amazingly short time, which
0: is great. So, um, yeah, so, so do, do, you think, do you think that Goenka was inspired to teach this sort of very um, strictly limited version of, of Vipassana because of that?
1: So I have an inside scoop from a friend who I'd, I don't know if they would want me saying their name. So I'm just going to say I know someone who was also there back in the day yeah. when Uba Kin was teaching Ruth Dennison, and Robert Harry Hoover and Gwenka and the two others the woman and the other guy whose name for whatever reason I'm blanking on at the moment but the point is that Ubakin taught all of them from the Vasudhi Marga which is a big meditation manual mm. of purification by Buddha mm. Gosa, that you can look up and find it's free for download online it's a great hog of a of a cumbersome text mm. but amazing it's sort of like an encyclopedia and he would look at each of these practitioners, who were all different, they all had totally different styles, different mm. needs, and he would teach them each different stuff that yeah. was appropriate to them. What's interesting is that since he was teaching them each individually, apparently back in the day, none of them realized the degree to which Uba Khin was giving them all something that was not unique, but very, very custom tailored for them, yeah for what was going on with them, right, or their difficulties for their strengths, for their goals, for their personality style, because the Vasurimaga has all that technology built into it about different techniques for different types of people and different remedies for different imbalances, right, and he was combining that with his own. Insight and training and wisdom and skill, and crafting some custom tech for each of them. Uh, uh. And apparently, uh, they all then, after studying with him, tried to teach together initially. And apparently, it was a mess. It was a mess mm. because they hadn't realized h- how differently they were each being taught. And they were saying things that were totally different, totally at odds. And right. so, they apparently rapidly all went their own ways. Yeah. And apparently, Goankaji did not have dark night problems, right? Mm. He was this big, reassured, confident, powerful person who the dark night and the maps were not much of a thing for. And furthermore, when he taught, I know some people who sat with the man back in the day and they said, and people who now know the maps, and they said his presence, his confidence, his reassurance, his energy mm. somehow mm. transmitted and something about that just carried people through the hard stuff. Mm. He, so, he inspired so much faith that people just did the techniques, they grew in wisdom, they mm. kind of got this transmission, this resonance, the support by his energy and his faith, his own faith and confidence and competence. Mm. And mm. so they didn't really need any of that when he was around, apparently. Mm. So I've heard. Nice. So Goenka... Didn't need it for his practice. He wasn't taught it. The people he was teaching because of him. Apparently, he was sort of part of the secret sauce to make this map three map free combination work. They didn't really need it because he somehow support held them in this space of like you know the big. He was a big yeah 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 yeah. yeah. I'm like big confident Indian guy. Yeah yeah yeah. And and so. They didn't recognize that without him and in some practitioners, it might've been incredibly relevant to have this tech. And then Goenka said, if you don't change the tradition and you keep it just like I've taught it, you keep the videos and you keep everything the same, then it will last for, I don't know, 500 years or something. I can't remember the quote. And if you don't, then it will degenerate. And so there came this notion that they shouldn't touch the tradition, which I I get that. They respected the teacher, and he said it, and Goenka was impressive, and he created this amazing organization, and he helped a lot of people. So I understand where the conflict of the tradition comes Mm-hmm. And But that said, I really still think it's time for change and I know that annoys the tradition and it creates the possibility of a split and that absolutely sucks and, uh, like, what a mess. And yeah. still, I can't help but have my opinion based on my own experience of having conversed and written back and forth to countless hundreds of people who have had serious downsides from not having these stages normalized for them and explained. Yeah. Do you think
2: maybe, like, if... There was a way to maybe just keep the tradition as it was, but then also say, you know, this is a resource that if this does happen to you, then here's where you go.
1: Well, is that keeping the tradition as it was? So is that just teaching exactly like it was from the exact videos, doing it exactly the way he said to do it, that's not the same. And the problem is the traditionalists rightly point this out. They say this is an alteration, this is a change. Right. This is not what Goenkaji said to do. And so right. there's, no, there's no mechanism by which you can still upgrade it and still be true to the tradition. So it has a certain simultaneous stability and also a quality that the progressives look at look at and find stagnating constricting and repressive yeah and is is it you know and that it inhibits growth and development of something that admittedly has a lot of impressive aspects to it and has been in some ways very successful I think now the largest meditation tradition in the world in terms of running retreats by far Mm -hmm.
2: I feel like it's just challenging because if Like, it's like with any religion, even as well. Like, it often doesn't update unless, I don't know, all the ATs got together and then were just consensual and saying, okay, well, maybe there should be a shift. Or I don't know, you know. Um, But I had served on one course and I said, actually, for a plant based diet, this is very, very niche, but I'll say it anyway. Uh, For a plant based diet, it's better to have like rapeseed oil than sunflower oil because of the omega three, six and nine ratio. So I said, and it's also very cheap as well. And just changing that. And they said, well, you would have to look at this. And then there's like all these structures. And I said, but you know, it's a very simple thing by just choosing something else that will ultimately be much more beneficial. So even just a small change like that is very interesting. Um I found serving sometimes challenging because of that. Yeah. Just everything you do to be the same, yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, it's really interesting, your thoughts on Goenka there, because the, the video, sadly, can't answer your questions anymore, right? Right. Um, he, he, <laughs> you can't, we can't talk with him. Mm. I, I met him very briefly when he visited the UK once, and, and he absolutely had that kind of aura. He just He was just a very warm... Friendly guy, and you yeah, yeah. you instantly felt good being around him, so I could totally imagine that that working like anyone i 've met who actually attended a course with him just had nothing nothing but good things to say about the guy, yeah very very warm so as I mentioned, get, getting into your your work six months ago it was quite a big shift for me and opened up lots of possibilities and techniques and one of which I tried out was the fire casino and it's been like a a, an absolute revelation for me and just in terms of like doing something different in meditation but also something that worked in and in in a really profound way and introduced me to the the jhanas basically i I wanted to ask you about why do you think it's not kind of more of a theme in in buddhist meditation because it's such a simple thing essentially you know staring at a light I have a, this is, this is my, um, meditation focus right here. And you know, I look at that and, and amazing things happen very quickly yeah. that mm-hmm. I didn't even know you could do that. Yeah. <laughs> I've been meditating 20 years and um, boom, it was, it was like, it was like sitting on a moving skateboard going downhill. When I started doing this stuff, it was just this instant rush of power that, that enabled mm-hmm. incredible things that I didn't know were possible. So like, why? Why is it falling out of favour, Daniel? What happened?
1: So I don't know all of the history of what happened to the casinos. Yeah. So they're first described very briefly in texts about 23, 2400 years old, something like that. And then they're elaborated on more in some commentaries that happened around the first century AD. And then even more thoroughly described that sort of that's, that's a book called the Vimudimaga or the Path of Freedom by the Arhat Upatissa. And then more thoroughly described in the Visuddhi Maga, the book we continue to mention by Buddhagosa, which is part of the commentarial tradition. And they What's interesting is these books go on and on and on about casino practice. Mm. This is a time when ink and paper were valuable, when even preserving a book was a project from having it not eaten by insects or destroyed yeah. by rain to transport them. They were big, complicated things to produce. And these books are thousands and thousands of words, yeah. you know, large, large tomes, and they dedicate tons, tons of time to casino practice. And so, you know, it was valuable to them because to remember something, to transmit it, to write it down was cumbersome and they would not waste it on something they didn't think was extremely useful. Yeah. And then what happened between the fifth century AD or sixth century, somewhere around there and modern times? I don't know. We have very few records of that period. We don't know. There's oral tradition. There is, you know, monasteries. there's you know, the, the order nearly died out in various places, had to be reconstituted. Mm. There is the stuff that happened in India with uh, Mughals, Mughal Empire, and the other people who basically obliterated most of Buddhism in its native land. Um, we have different teachers who resonated with different practices and all the strange stuff that happens in the telephone game, you know, of transmission of the Dharma, as we can see, it morphs and changes and warps constantly. Even people I've taught, uh, you know, and uh, teach, you know, things that are totally different from anything that looks like me. And the people who taught me, I do things that are totally different in some ways from what they said. And so it gets filtered through individuals. And then what happened? I don't know. So, but what I do know is that these techniques nearly disappeared. Yeah. And I didn't know really anybody who was teaching them or talking about them, except when I mentioned them to Bhante Gunaratana, who has a book called uh, The Path of Serenity and Insight, or the Jhanas is an earlier version of it, which was his, part of which was his PhD dissertation. This is a Sri Lankan uh, scholar monk practitioner who came from Sri Lanka, who which is a place that also ver- values genre practice, and they value mm. it so they're like genre first and then insight mm. most of the time, rather mm. than say insight first, which is some of the Burmese people, although not mm. all, such as Pa Oksidao is more genre first, right? Mm. And so that means they'd go into deep concentration states and then turn those into insight, which is one of the ways it's definitely described in the old text. So I understand why they might do that. It seems very traditional and canonical. And he would briefly sort of answer a few questions about casino practice. And you could tell he had done it, but he mm-hmm. never talked about it in his Dharma mm-hmm. talks. Nobody was doing it. He didn't, he didn't teach it. He just wrote about it very briefly in his books. But I read the old The old when I found the Vasudhi Maga and the Vimudi Maga, and I was reading these old books, I was like, oh my golly, they cared about this. This Mm. was a thing. And this is how they were getting into deep genres. This Mm. is how they were getting powers experiences. This is how they were getting insight. This seems crucial. What the heck? Mm. And then that dovetailed with my friend Honey Bunny. And Honey Bunny was my sister's husband's sister's, well now ex-husband, who was also a magical practitioner. And he was talking about drawing pentagrams in the air. for the Lesser lesser banish Ritual of the Pentagram. And he was one of my few friends I could talk with meditation about for a few years during some of my graduate school training days where I really didn't have much of a local sangha and the internet was nothing like it is today. Mm. And... So he would talk about drawing things in the air. And I was like, well, how do you draw things in the air? He's like, well, you visualize the color and you do this. And I was like, well, that sounds like kind of like a casino practice. He's like, wow, that actually might really help. You could try using those practices to see if you are able to use them to leverage then being able to do these rituals and actually see the things you're drawing with your finger and the things you're visualizing. So I started playing around with that. And they also, in the magical tradition, have practices where you do stare at a candle and get more concentrated on the candle. And I looked in the books and they said, yeah, fire casino, definitely a thing. And one of the Best, uh, one of the highest of the casinos, along with the light casino and the white casino, they sort of grouped them all in sort of the same category. And so I started experimenting with this on retreat. I said, well, look, nobody's going to teach me this. I can't find it, but it seems really important. I'm just going to figure this stuff out. I'm going to go back to the old books. I'm going to play around. So I started playing around with it on my own. And kind of figured it out. Now, today, if you actually want to get instruction in some of the stuff, you could actually go to Burma or one of the people trained by Pauk and you could get some instruction. They might do it a little bit differently from you, me, use some different words, but it's kind of a lot of the same stuff. Mm. And so then you will find that there are these incredibly powerful practices. But why in the world they're not taught more broadly? My thesis is that part of it is just the sort of reaction of modernity and scientific materialism to the woo-woo and the weird, which Mm. this is, right? Mm. Very quickly, this gets into the woo-woo and the weird. Mm -hmm. I think also a lot of meditation teachers, even who have run into it, really don't want to deal with their students walking around having powers and crazy experiences and demons and stuff. Like, that's not what your average overcommitted Dharma teacher who's got a 10-minute interview with you every two days and 120 (laughs) people sitting out there has the time to handle responsibly. Like, what a crap show that would be Right? <laughs> like, seriously. So even if they were just being purely responsible and they had purely good ethics and motivations for doing this, okay, I get it. Cool. Maybe that was the right move. And some of, a lot of people just haven't studied this. If you're coming from Zen or a Tibetan yeah. tradition, you wouldn't have run into this. So, Tibetans, in all honesty, have lots of visualizations and mantras, which are, in some ways, get you into very similar territory. So related, but all that stuff is taught in secret mostly to, you know, with lots of initiations you have to go through mm-hmm. and a lot of support mm-hmm. with a guru that's helping you to navigate it and all that stuff. So they they try to build in a lot of safety tech and material and support and constraints on who actually gets access to that. Mm. I get it. And then you have crazy people like me who will just teach this to everyone and post lots of descriptions <laughs> and say, hey, let's all be wizards or whatever, and witches, and go crashing into wild meditation territory, which is definitely not always a good idea, as sounds like both of you have noticed. <laughs> so maybe I'm the irresponsible one, and they're the, they're the sane ones. I can't be <laughs> sure. Um, but those are possible reasons that this stuff isn't more broadly known. Any thoughts?
0: It's very interesting, and you sort of answered another question there. And like, I was, I was wondering, like, is this just easy for me due to my current condition, state, karma, whatever? Or, or you know, if you taught beginners, would this also be really powerful? If, if yeah. they just said, okay, just sit down and like stare at this candle, yes. right? Hey, okay, great. Have, have you have you done that? Yeah. And how how was that experience? Wild ride. Yeah. So was this someone with no meditation experience or just a bit?
1: Not much and never much. done a retreat.
0: Oh, okay. So first retreat experience as well. Yeah. Ooh. And then a
1: small sitting group of uh, some practitioners, most of which who were sort of low-level beginner to low-level intermediate practitioners. And yet they <gasps> still got into some interesting territory pretty quickly.
0: Yeah. Uh, how did you find, were you kind of coaching that, helping them through it?
1: Um, yeah, so that's what I was doing back then a long time ago when I was running a local sitting group that was in Louisville. About, how long ago was that now? Quite a while ago.
0: Right. How was that experience?
1: Uh, it was gr- I mean, it was simultaneously very rewarding and validating to see these ancient techniques being uh. dusted off and getting uh. fresh new life in uh. new people and proving their power and their worth. And also you got to inform people, hey, like, do you want to live in a magical universe? Do you actually want to do this stuff? Do you want to be crashing around in wild territory that's pretty strange? And give them an appropriate heads up so they know what they're getting themselves into.
0: Mm, 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 mm. What,
2: what would you say about like those who don't want to be living and like what kind of practices they should maybe start initially looking at instead?
1: Well, so the problem is that any of these practices can actually produce magical experiences. It's more a question of shades of gray. So, if you're just focusing on your breath, less likely. Or your feet or walking practice. If you're doing a bunch of eyes open stuff, less likely. Movement based practices, more like yoga, like hatha yoga with mindfulness, and or um, some of the qigong practices. Depending on the ones that don't involve a lot of visualization of energy channels and stuff, because the more you start getting into the energy stuff rather than just the movements, the more likely the magic gets. Um, so basically more visualization and more mantra and more creating things in your mind that most people would not hear or see those are the practices that are more likely to lead you into magical territory obviously psychedelics one of the things that can lead people into magical territory and often much less integration there because it tends to be something of a crash course and has that sort of edgy kind of distorted quality that psychedelics and sometimes bring, though sometimes profound for people. I'm not advocating for or against psychedelics here. That's something somebody needs to make their own choices and be appropriately aware of what makes sense for them in the place that they are and laws and all that, whole other issue. But um, yeah, basically the more physically grounded and less visualize and less um, mantra-y the practice, the less magical it's likely to be. But that's not necessarily true at all. So I know plenty of people who have had magical experiences that were doing extremely physical practices that were way on the grounded side. So no guarantees. And, but that said, I know other people who do tons of practices that you would expect to produce a lot of magical experiences and they don't get much. So there definitely seems to be something different about different people. Some people are just more prone to this stuff,
0: but you don't know until you've tried. Thank you. Brilliant. Daniel, it's, it's, I'm aware it's, we're, yeah. we've been chatting for a while now um, and, mm-hmm. and I want to be um, respectful of your time. Um,
1: um, I'm fine. I can go on.
0: <laughs> good, good, good. Uh, I mean, is there anything you'd like to ask us or, or um, I'm going to shut up. I feel like I've been talking too much.
1: Yeah, what, what do you all hope to get by doing this podcast? What are you trying to help your audience feel, do, or understand? What are your goals?
0: I mean, I, th- I think, to be honest, half of it is just I find this stuff fascinating. We, so, me and Jasmine, we, we, we started, I'm aware I'm, I'm now dominating the conversation again. Uh, sorry, Jazz. Um, mm-hmm. we, we, we started chatting about meditation a little while ago. We only met recently, and we just had so much fun sharing our experiences that we thought it would be good to do more of this and, um, and record it potentially and potentially talk, bring, bring in other people to talk about stuff. Um, Jasmine, what are your thoughts on
2: it? So actually I had, I had a student who said to me, Jasmine, we have a, a lot of interesting conversations. but I feel like a lot of other people who are my age would benefit and we, we weren't actually speaking about meditation in general, but it was more about consciousness, um, living more intentionally, uh, mindfulness and emotional intelligence. And we have a group in London called the Awakened Circle, but it's also worldwide. You might know of it. And there are a lot of practitioners who every time we meet, so usually we sit for an hour, then we go through a reading, everyone shares their perspectives and then the host has cooked for us during that time it's really wonderful and so many great conversations are happening but i just thought okay so if i could share this how would i do that and so i i actually proposed it to bill and one other friend what would that be like if we just had conversations and then Bill started saying, well, we could actually have other guests on. So initially, it was just going to be us speaking about interesting things. And so, what are the
1: topics that you found the richest that you that made you think, oh, yeah, this is something we should record? Or, oh, I really wish we had recorded that conversation so we could share it.
2: I think it, it's, it's when, um, because each person who comes to these community circles are so different. It's this like... Uh, coming together with such different mindsets and mind states as well, as well as just like personal life circumstances that lend to, there is no one specific topic, but just what unfolds. So it's, that's why initially in these, uh, in this podcast series, we didn't want to have it so that it's like an interview Q and A, but more of a conversation that flows in such a way that uh, information can just arise as it is, because I find that that's often what's most nourishing or um, finding and exploring new spaces.
1: Nice. So something about the conversational aesthetic itself of the open discussion of our deep experiences.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, there, there is that. Totally. I mean, it, it's it's really it's really interesting dynamic to figure out because um, ha- having having a guest on uh, like yourself, Daniel, is it's to me a rare opportunity to talk to someone who's who's really dug into this stuff to the extent that you have. So I, I wouldn't sometimes I've listened to podcasts where they have guests on and then, but then the host just ends up talking over them for half the episode. I'm like, come on, give, give the guy space here. Like I'm actually more interested in what the guest has to hear than you. So <laughs> I'm aware of that. And I don't want to sort of <laughs> hear too much of myself on this, but I think what I really like what you were saying there, Jasmine, about the, the conversational dynamic. There, there's something in that, that things emerge out of conversations that don't, necessarily come out of interviews and, and that's that's really interesting side to uh, to life really
2: and I feel like it's also when like for someone like yourself who I don't actually know Daniel it would be that you might be speaking about other things that in daily conversation you might say to friends that you have but you might not specifically share in Q&A's or something because it's been targeted in such a way that the Q and A's are trying to find something out. Right. So it's not as versatile it's not as open and like open handed and open hearted. I think I feel in some ways, but this is just the vibe.
1: And then there's also the problem of recording itself. So when you record audio, you skew what people say. And when you record video, you skew how they move, how they hold their face.
0: Yeah.
1: All of that.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's awful tricky. Even if we had um, some kind of perfect recording rig that would just pick you up wherever you were, whatever you were doing, it all sound good. But we're all kind of fixed here in these these little boxes, kind of <laughs> mm-hmm. trying not to move too much. <laughs>
2: what, what we also wanted to do was um, maybe take away from even having video. Uh, so ourselves, we would have video, but when we would post it up, it would be that we had animated characters. So it kind of lent to a freedom of you could be wherever you wanted. You could like walk around, you could be standing up and it wouldn't really matter, but it was more just about the conversation that was happening. So just interesting, different ways to frame things and have it as rich as possible. And in the future, we would like it to be in person so that it wouldn't have to even be over like call. Um, if there were people who were, in London, in the same city as ourselves, then that would just be amazing. And of course, having the internet would, has facilitated being able to meet yourself. So there's benefits to both.
1: How about for your own practice? What are you up to these days?
2: Should I go? Um, go ahead. For me, I, I actually also began after that kind of a demonic experience in just the Goenka practice. Uh, something a lot more grounding. And so I practice, I'm working up to three hours a day again. Um, and I do a lot of journaling, which for me is like, so poetry and uh, process, it, it, it allows me to go into, I think various different places where I can be more systematic in my thoughts, uh, structural as well as like explorative. And I teach uh, emotional intelligence and mindfulness. So there are a huge range of practices there. And I'm finding a lot more that everything is becoming more integrated in my daily routine, in the moment, like self-management continuously. So I feel like having both the more neuroscience-based as well as go anchors. They, I, I feel like they merge really well, and I, I didn't know about any of the. I think I looked, I heard about these maps maybe ten years ago, but I didn't really think of, about it. And uh, I'm actually someone who prefers to practice, and that. Well, actually, so there is so much information I find that we have, but we don't have it integrated. And so for me, a lot of the time it's about practice. And I find, like, in this moment, many from many different directions, a lot of theory has come into place, or people who have been advising me towards looking at theory. And it feels like it's it's the right moment. But for a long time, I said, like, I I don't really want, like, this. And so it's slowly shifting. That's where I am.
0: Yeah, my my practice is pretty limited at the moment I'm, I'm a uh a dad and holding down jobs so uh, um so I, i'm managing like maybe an hour a day an hour and a half a day sitting in a in one or two sessions and uh, i've just been exploring um Djanic territory absorption states for anyone who, who doesn't know the janas uh, on a very light level i think but building on stuff in your books, Daniel, and also, uh, Lee Brassington's right concentration, a few other places. And, and that's again, a kind of scripting kind of question, I suppose for me, cause it's, it's been uncanny for me how I've gone through those, those meditations and kind of unexpected things have happened. And I've been like, what the hell was that? That was really different and really strange. And and not like the previous sits. And then I go to the, the, the suitors or, or or your book or Lee's book, and, I, and it's just kind of there. It's oh like, yeah, that's probably third Jhana or whatever. <laughs> so that's been fascinating for me recently. It's been a real uh, playground, basically. Nice. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating stuff. So that Jhanic map, how, how much do you think that that is scriptable? Or is there something like... As you've mentioned about insight stages, it's like they're almost like embryonic stages that are so kind of predictable for people. Do you think the jhanas are like that?
1: Yeah, I think the jhanas fundamentally describe different distinct attention modes that are physiological, that they're talking about something in the underlying structure of something in brain connectivity of the phases of the pulses of attention of the widths of attention, of various ways we process feelings, experiences, the body. And I think these are intrinsic. And you can take those to various degrees of depth, sort of dimensional thinking of genre versus categorical thinking, you know, only this certain experience is genre versus is one way of thinking it versus, you know, shades of gray, I had more bliss today or more concentration, sort of two different ways of thinking about deep meditation experiences, both interesting and both sometimes useful, are, are sort of superficial to the deeper question of the fact that I truly believe from my own experience and some playing around with fMRI and EEG that the genres are just part of the mechanisms we are given by which we attend to things and that they develop in ways that generally are just extremely predictable and expected. Having taught bunches of people on retreat and having done a lot of this myself and got Mm. to witness endless reports of my fellow co-adventurers on the path, I'm way beyond the possibility of somebody convincing me that that's not true. just the overwhelm evidence seems to me overwhelming this is just something intrinsic in human attention and its function and can be developed to various degrees of depth yeah but is something at the level of structure and genetics and nature yeah uh, that said can be augmented and modified by nurture
0: yeah it's it's fascinating to me i mean the fact that these these experiences I have seem to mirror these two thousand three year old three hundred year old texts like that <laughs> it's quite amazing.
1: Again, I think they were just extremely good attentional anatomists. Just like when they described the gallbladder in ancient Greek and Egyptian books, well, we still have mm. gallbladders. It's not surprising that yeah. that's still true. <laughs> <laughs> In the same way, it's not surprising that attention still develops the same way.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's fascinating stuff.
1: Jasmine, I was wondering, what were the 10 years where you were looking at the maps and people might have been saying these were interesting or something you might benefit from? What was going on on your side that made you think, yeah, I don't want to look at those, not interesting, something off about them, not appealing?
2: Um, I think it was... It might have actually been longer than that. I initially, like when I first heard about it, it was when I was growing up, and we lived behind a Buddhist temple, and there were like different books on the walls, and like different uh, images and like descriptions of things. And I just thought it just looked all a bit crazy. Like you just see, it and it looks like something out of, I don't, a fairy tale or a story. Yes and um I think after I when I saw it again I was maybe about 15 and I didn't I wasn't really practicing meditation either or like what I didn't like not intentionally um and so I just thought you know I I never associated myself to be a Buddhist either so I never wanted to I don't know. I just didn't have the inclination to delve into it. Um, it didn't seem to be helpful at that time or I wasn't so interested as well, mm-hmm. it, which is where I was. And only now, again, has Bill mentioned it. So there's been huge gaps between even hearing about it. Um, and I also think maybe not have, you were saying that you had like a local sangha and
1: A long time ago.
2: Oh, yeah. Um, Or like maybe you have a community with whom you practice with, like your friends and so on. Um, And it's interesting that kind of a concept of community where maybe it would have popped up more if I had other people who I was meditating with more regularly. But only now is it slowly coming that way that I'm wanting to form a community like that or a circle. And then Bill just happened to pop in. Um, to that but nothing otherwise against the uh
1: cool just curious thank you
2: i actually have one last question it is do you think it's necessary to have a teacher and if so um how might one look for the right teacher
1: Wow, (laughs) okay, so that also could be an entire podcast.
2: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Right, it's
1: it's a huge question. So trying to get it to a really quick answer, it's both yes and no. Okay. Is it true that teachers can be incredibly helpful, that they can sometimes see things in seconds that might have taken you years to see about yourself, can they sometimes just give a word or a phrase or a technique or something that saves you a staggering amount of trouble and pain and complexity and difficulty? Absolutely. Um, Yeah. So I've benefited tremendously from the teachers I've been lucky enough to have and to find and very, very grateful the chances of me figuring the stuff out on my own without all that, almost nothing that said I did come up in an era where there wasn't nearly as much good information available as there is today, not nearly as many freely available online videos. Back then you might have had to order something from a tape library and order a book from Sri Lanka and now all that stuff is available for instant download on PDF. Now the problem is too much information, not nearly uh, rather than not nearly enough. And so it's a different set of issues today. There are many, many more people teaching meditation of extreme, an extremely wide range of quality, an extremely wide range of financial and cultural relationships. Um, I myself am, have a strong predisposition against involving money and the Dharma because I think it's intrinsically corrupting, but there are a lot of teachers now who like to be paid often extremely well for... There are time, I can understand the arguments they make for it, but hopefully they can understand mine against it. And that said, there are a bunch of bad teachers out there, too, who misdiagnose, who give terrible advice, who like to keep people dependent, who want them to be their students, who keep doling it out in little bits, who keep things mysterious, who are not empowering, who do not teach with an open hand, who do not teach freely, who violate the social conventions of ethics and societal norms and the religious tradition of freely given high-quality ethical dharma and all of that and so it's a mess right now and it's an amazing mess it's an a remarkable mess and we're actually extremely lucky to have this particular mess in comparison to a lot of areas where you wouldn't have had anything like this access Mm. but all of that said one needs to keep one's wits about them if someone is saying i have the true way the best way the most special way just run. I'm sorry. That's just bullshit. It's just not true. There's so much good stuff out there right now. And the vast majority of your teacher needs to be your own experience. This fathom long body, this needs to be like 95% of it. And the theory and all of that is cool and helpful and supportive. I'm obviously a big fan. I wrote a 320,000-page book about meditation theory and practice, right? I do lots of podcasts and videos. Okay, guilty as charged. But that said, if 95% 95 of it isn't your own practice, your own experience, your own application of simple techniques in reasonable doses, then something is out of balance and wrong. And you're going to end up dependent and or financially exploited and or a part of some cult and or something like that. So keep your wits about you. Good luck. And right here, a whole lot of answers to be found right here. And one of the most delightful things for me, who actually is not anybody's meditation teacher, the vast majority of my calls are one-offs we never talk again, or email answers just a few back and forth, and then it's done, and I refer them to other people. So I'm not trying to become anybody's meditation teacher, just in case anybody's asking. I'm not (laughs) trying to. Seriously. Um, You know, I'll answer a few questions, and then I'll try to figure out where to send you. Um, But uh, the vast majority of people are ending up dependent, stuck in these weird relationships, something hierarchical, and looking out there And from my point of view, Mm -hmm. what feels so satisfying is when I run run into people who have finally made that turn, and this is where they are looking for their answers. And if they run into real trouble or something that's really throwing them, and somehow all the theory that's freely available and all the good meditation tech and help and maps and time aren't unsticking it, okay, I get why they need help. Mm -hmm. but. It's it, the feel of people who are rather than you, you and you answer this and you figure tell me this and you help me with that. You uh, that's so annoying to me <laughs> and seems like people who are stuck stuck in some sort of adolescent state and maybe that's just where they are. Okay, I get it. But vastly more comfortable is when people are like, no, I'm finding it here. I'm looking within. I'm truly. I've turned it back. And there is some suffering and there are some moving sensations and there are some thoughts and I'm going to relate to them skillfully. I'm going to do this well and and deal with hindrances and find truth here. That's what feels good to me. And I think that's how you can tell you've got something healthy going on is when this is the vast majority of it.
2: Thank you. (laughs) That's very helpful. Yeah, because a lot of mine has been internal work and it's just then that because there's so much out there, then it's am I also then supposed to be looking? It, it's like that, you know, that, that that's like doubt. Sure. <laughs> um yes. Uh it was wonderful to have you on and to be hearing about just your vast knowledge and like dispensing it so freely and openly. Um
1: Again, people were kind enough to do that for me. I pay it forward. Hopefully that tradition will continue a long time.
0: Thanks so much, Daniel. It's a real pleasure. And thanks for all the work that you do. Uh, Where can people find you on the internet?
1: www.integrateddaniel.info is the website where you'll find the links to all the other stuff. And then the Dharma Overground and firecasina.org are also good places to look.
0: Brilliant. Thanks so much. I hope to speak to you again. And
1: Vimeo has some videos on Vimeo. Oh yeah, yeah,
0: Vimeo too. Brilliant. And
2: any links will be put in the description.
0: Yeah. Great. Yeah. Thank Thank you, you, sir. Bye.
2: Have a wonderful rest of your day.
0: You too. Thanks for listening to this episode of Awake In Podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Check out the show notes. Listen to more episodes and find our socials at our site, awake-in.com. We'd love to hear your feedback, so do please get in touch.